All right, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, we are at the halfway point. Can you believe that? Yeah, halfway, about 12 messages later, here we are to chapter 3. We will wrap this up, I promise, uh, in July and uh, head in a different direction in August. But Philippians chapter 3 is where we will be today. Excuse me. I'm going to take another drink of water. If you don't have a Bible, there should be Bibles in front of you. Uh, Also on our CC app, if you have downloaded our CC app, there's a Bible on that app. So you can just open that up and uh, stay off Facebook and just be right there in the Bible, okay? So uh, it was about three or four weeks ago, I was outside. I was actually piddling around in the garage as the kids were playing uh, in the front yard and riding their bikes and tricycles on our block. And uh, they love to ride out there. There was about six or eight kids total with the neighbor's kids as they're riding around uh, late afternoon. The, the, one of the other neighbor's babysitters is also watching uh, the kids from her lawn chair. And so I was just piddling around watching, <clears throat> excuse me, watching them. And one of the things that they really uh, like to do is they like to get on the incline of, of the highest driveways, gain some speed, and then just shoot down that driveway into the street and then across uh, to the neighbor's driveway, right? So uh, that's what they like to do. I have warned them multiple times. Okay, guys, watch out for cars. Watch out for cars. And I'm piddling around and And uh, just a few minutes after I had given a warning from the west, coming down the road, a little car comes from the west, is not seeing the kids in the driveway. The view is a little bit obstructed by a car that's parked in the street. And as that small car comes this way, little Lennox, who's about three or four years old, begins her descent down the steep driveway headed into the street as this car is coming. The babysitter was scared, was paralyzed, motionless in her lawn chair, and thankfully, luckily, I did not have my head in my phone or wasn't bent over looking somewhere else, and I saw this happening like slow motion and yelled at the top of my lungs, Watch out! And thankfully, Lennox screeched on the brakes, the car screeched on the brakes, and little Lennox came about four or five feet from that car, And I'm sure the driver heard my yell. It was so loud. Elizabeth told me that she heard the yell inside. But a dangerous moment, a catastrophic moment was was saved because a warning was yelled out. Watch out. Well, this morning as we pick up our study of Philippians again in chapter 3, we find a loud warning. A warning from Paul that says, watch out, look out. In fact, three times he's going to say, look out, because he sees danger coming. Now, we've talked as we've gone through this series that Philippians, uh, for the most part, is a very positive message. It's, It's one of the most positive books that Paul writes. He's mostly encouraging them, but there is this, this, these passages of warning. We saw one slight warning in chapter two as he talks about the potential for division, okay, and divisiveness within this little church. Uh, But this morning, as we get to chapter three, we see uh, an even stronger warning. And it's not a warning about division. It's not a warning about idolatry. It's not even a warning about immorality. It's actually a warning about morality. It's actually a warning about religion. 
Now, how many times have you heard a preacher warn a group of folks about religion or about high moral standards? Well, we have to because there is confusion between religion and Christianity. Religious activity and Christian faith, and that's at the heart of what Paul is getting to this morning. And to summarize it, just the bottom line goes like this. The bottom line is don't confuse religious activity for a relationship with Christ. Don't equate morality with Christianity. And don't assume that a strict lifestyle means a true faith. That's not the case. Christianity is not just a moral code. And so Paul warns us here, and his, his warning is strong, his warning is long, because he sees the danger of religion in its subtlety. He sees that it has the appearance of goodness. It is clothed in respectability, I mean, high moral standards, high ethics, people being good, people being zealous after religious things. But he sees its danger, and he yells out strongly, watch out. Watch out. So we'll unpack that as we go along here this morning. But here's our headings, our major points today, three headings. First of all, we'll see his warning. Secondly, we'll see his resume. And thirdly, we'll see his confidence. Paul's warning, Paul's resume, and Paul's confidence. Before we read the passage here, let me just uh, pray for us again, okay? Father God, we, uh, we want to know you. We want to know you truly. We do not just want to go through the motions. We do not just want to be religious people, but we want to know you, God, as Father and know your Son, Jesus, and the salvation and the life that he gives us. So I pray, Lord, this morning as we look at this passage that you would protect us from religion, that you would protect us from religiosity and just a form of moralism that has no power and that we would cling to our Savior and not ourself, not our good works, but the good work of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Warning, resume, and confidence. First of all, we see Paul's warning. Join me in uh, Philippians chapter 3 there. I'm just going to read the first three verses uh, as we start here. Verse 1 says, finally, my brothers. Now, let me just stop right there, okay? Finally, my brothers. Uh, Paul is using preacher talk here, right? Because it's chapter three. We got chapter three and chapter four to go, but he wants you to think he's wrapping up, but he's really not. He's got two chapters to go here. So he said, finally, he, he has these things. He's emphasizing, I, I, I've got some relevant things for you. And one of them is right here. He's, he's underlining this finally, and he's writing to brothers. This warning is, is not the warning of a king. It's not the warning of a, a boss, some type of sub- superior, but it's the warning of a loving apostle to people that he knows saying, watch out, brothers, watch out, be careful. And the next thing you notice is is that he says, as we've seen numerous times in Philippians, he says, rejoice in the Lord. About six times in Philippians, we read about rejoicing or, or joy, some verb or noun form of joy. He says, rejoice in the Lord, not in your circumstances, but in the Lord. And this is significant because you know if you've been here, if you've studied Philippians before, Paul's circumstances were not great as he says, rejoice in the Lord. I mean, they're actually pretty bad. He is chained to a Roman guard. He's, he's imprisoned. He's not where he wants to be. And yet, he, all through this letter, he's talking about joy. You can rejoice in the Lord even though your circumstances imprison you, perhaps. 
Rejoice in the Lord. He finishes verse 1 by saying, To write the same things to you is no trouble for me, and it is safe for you. Now, I'll come back to this later, but he's, he's writing them the same things. This is not the first time this, they've, they've heard this warning. He's given them this warning before, but he's saying it again, and he's saying it that it's a safeguard for them because of the subtlety, because of the danger of just religious formalism. Okay, I'm writing you the same thing, and it's good for you. It's a safeguard for you. And then he gets personal towards these uh, false teachers uh, about what he's warning about. If you look in uh, verses 2 and 3, he starts calling names, all right? We don't want our kids to call each other names, but here the Apostle Paul is name-calling, okay? And look at the names he says. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. What is he talking about here? Again, three times. He says, look out, watch out, beware. And first of all, he calls them dogs. And let me, let me clarify, 2016, suburban Collin County people, dogs is, is not a friendly term in the first century, okay? We have a dog, we love him. Uh, he's a lot of work and he needs to be trained still, but we love our dog. But Paul is not saying this affectionately. He's saying it uh, as a slap. Uh, To call someone a dog was a common phrase among Jews who thought that Gentiles, non-Jewish people, were dirty. They would call them a dog. Even today, in many parts of the world, to call someone a dog is a great insult, particularly in the Arab uh, world, to call someone a dog is is quite an insult. So he is insulting these false teachers here. He's calling them dogs. Uh, One of the the reasons he does that is because these dogs, these false teachers, are... uh, are scavenging around. They're scavengers, and they're, they're mean, and they're dirty, and, and uh, he calls them dogs. Instead of Jews calling Gentiles dogs, Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, although a Jew himself, is calling other Jews, very religious Jews, dogs. Not only are they dogs, but they're evildoers, They think they're doing good. They think they're being religious, but that's not the way he sees it. That's not the view of the gospel of the true Christian faith. It's actually what they're doing is they're covering up the gospel. They're adding to the gospel, which he says is evil. They're evildoers. And finally, you see, he calls them mutilators of the flesh. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. What is he talking about here? Well, he's going to give us a little more in uh, in verse uh, 3, I guess. Uh, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We need to talk about what he means by flesh and what he means by mutilation without being too graphic here, okay? We are the circumcised party, he says, because what's going on in this context, the, the dangerous false teaching that he is addressing is a teaching in the first century called the Judaizing teaching, Judaizers were those that that believed in Jesus, who would accept Jesus as the Messiah, but in their zeal for Judaism, they wanted to to keep hold of all the Old Testament ceremonies, all the Old Testament laws, the Old Testament diets, things like that, the Old Testament holy days, which the New Testament declared no longer needed. So these Judaizers would say, not, not only do you need to be a Christian, not only do you need to believe in Jesus, but you need to keep some of these kosher laws. 
And you need to keep this covenant, this covenant symbol called circumcision. Now, if you don't know what circumcision is, ask your neighbor when you get home or as you, as you drive uh, off to lunch today, okay? But uh, circumcision was the mark of the covenant that Jewish boys were given at birth, all right? I'll spare you the details. But the, but the insult that he gives here is actually a pun in the Greek language. He says, uh, we are the circumcision, Greek word peritome, but you guys, the false teachers, that is, are the katatome. We are the peritome. You are the katatome. We cut around peri, but you kata cut it all up. You think the more mutilation, the better. If we have to be safe about circumcision, well, let's circumcise everybody even if it's not required by the gospel. So these false teachers were saying, Jesus is not enough, okay? You have to add something else to Jesus, that being circumcision, or that being these Old Testament laws, ceremonies, and holy days. You have to keep those. It's about your obedience. It's Jesus plus something. So he calls them mutilators of the flesh. It's not necessary, it's not good. And then he says, true worshipers, verse three, we are the true worshipers who are, uh, we are of the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God. Not by an external law, but by the spirit of God who lives in us and empowers us and resides in us to obey God because of grace. We are those who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. Or some of you might have a translation that says, and boast in Christ Jesus. As a Christian, our boasting is not in our circumcision or the New Testament equivalent of circumcision is baptism. We don't boast, we don't put our confidence in baptism. We don't put our confidence in growing up in a church or our church attendance. We put our confidence, we glory, we boast in Jesus Christ. That's why when we gather, we sing songs about Jesus. We boast in what Jesus has done for us. Our glory is not in ourselves or what we have done in the flesh, but we glory in Jesus. We need to define what flesh is because flesh here is not just, not just referring, to, well, first of all, it's referring to circumcision. You boast in the flesh, i.e. your circumcision. But he also uses the word flesh, and this is common throughout the New Testament. He uses the word flesh to say in your natural human state, your fleshly, sinful state, your works that you do in your own power, the religious activity that you do in the flesh by your own natural power, by your own natural sinful ability. You put confidence in your religious, natural, religious works, okay? But true worshipers worship by the Spirit of God. They glory, they boast in Christ Jesus, not in themselves, and they put no confidence in the flesh, okay? Their confidence is instead in Jesus Christ. But the Judaizers were putting their trust, they were putting their confidence in circumcision, in their good works. And Paul is gonna say in verses four through six here, he says, hey, look, you think you've been zealous? You think you've been moral? You think you're upstanding religious people? Well, check out my resume. And he goes in verses four through six, and he lists these these things that he has done, these, the status that he has. Look with me in verses four through six. He says, though I myself have a reason for confidence in the flesh in what I've done also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He's saying, you think you're good? I'm better. Let me tell you about it. 
And he's gonna go on and he's gonna, he's gonna list seven things, seven things that he thinks, or he used to think, I should say, made him righteous or qualified before God, okay? Four of them are things that he's inherited through his family and his upbringing, and the last three are things that he's done through his own personal commitment to Christ, okay, through his own zeal. So, uh, picking up again, if anyone has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, and here begins his list. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's giving his pedigree. And just to explain some of this a little bit to you, first of all, he starts with circumcision. Jewish law said that a, a, that a Jewish family should circumcise their son on the eighth day. It says that in multiple places in the Old Testament. He's saying, I, I, I hold exactly to the law. My parents held exactly to the law. I was circumcised on the eighth day. It talks about his purity, his, purity, his exactness. He says, I'm of the people of Israel. He's saying, by birth, I'm a descendant of the Old Testament patriarchs. I'm not someone who's been engrafted into Israel, but I'm original. I'm, I'm a descendant of of the great saints of the Old Testament patriarchs. I didn't come in later, but I am a descendant of Israel and all the benefits, all the promises that they have. You can read about those promises in Romans chapter nine if you want to. Not only of the people of Israel, but further beyond that of the tribe of Benjamin. Of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was the, a favored son of Jacob. Jacob is renamed Israel, Jacob Israel. Uh, and Jacob had this son, Benjamin, who was one of, the, one of the proudest, one of the most faithful tribes in Israel. And so he comes from that tribe. Benjamin and Judah were uh, kingdoms or tribes in the south. And there was uh, a lot of pride. There was uh, a lot of tribalism about belonging to that tribe. In fact, the great king, of, the first king of Israel was from the tribe of Benjamin. You might remember his name was Saul, King Saul. Well, guess who the apostle Paul, first named Saul, was named after? King Saul. I come from Israel. I'm a descendant of the patriarchs. I come from this great tribe of Benjamin. I, I'm named after our first king. And beyond that, he says, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now here, if you know a little background on Paul, you know that he actually is from Tarsus. Saul or Paul from Tarsus. And Tarsus is a Greek-speaking area. It wasn't a Hebrew-speaking area. But he's saying, even though I came from this Greek-speaking area, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I, I came from a Hebrew-speaking family. A Hebrew of Hebrews. Fifthly, as to the law of Pharisee. And if you've read through the Gospels at all, you know that the Pharisees was this very strict sect of Jewish people that Jesus often had a confrontation with, that Jesus often talked to the Pharisees. They were, they were a sect that was started uh, in the second century BC because of their zeal. They wanted, they knew that they had been disciplined. They knew that they had been punished by God for their lackadaisical attitude toward the law. So they wanted to be obedient. They wanted to be faithful. So they started this sect and they're the Pharisees, which means separated ones. Hey, we're going to separate and we're going to be the faithful ones. We're going to be uh, strident 
in our obedience to the law. We're going to be committed to pure religion. We're going to obey all the requirements and not only obey all the requirements, but make our own requirements. Like God said, don't work on the Sabbath. Well, we're going to just explain to you in a, in, a, in a couple dozen pages what that looks like. Here's what you can do. Here's what you can't do. This is how far you can walk. This is how far you can't walk. This is how you can light a fire or not light a fire. We're going to give you all these additional requirements in addition to the laws that God has given us as true laws. So he's a Pharisee. He's strict. Uh, six, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. This guy was zealous. He was trying to, to kill those who had put their faith in Christ. It says in Acts 26, as he's giving his testimony, that he tried to force the Christians, before he became a believer, he tried to force them to blaspheme Jesus. It also says in Acts 26 that he voted for their, uh, he voted, excuse me, for their, them to receive the death penalty. No one was more zealous for religion. No one was more zealous for what they thought was right than I was, says Paul. And then seventhly, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Blameless. I can't be uh, uh, accused of any scruples. I can't be uh, uh, accused of any wrongdoing. I am blameless. I am above reproach. So here's my resume. You guys, you Judaizers, you think you're religious? You think you're moral? You think you have high standards? I had the highest of standards. But guess what? Now I count that stuff as rubbish, is what he's going to say in a few verses. And the word rubbish there is, is, a, is a Greek curse word. He's saying rubbish, it, it literally means excrement, dung. I count it all rubbish, all that resume, and he is. He's given us his pedigree. He's given a resume, and he says, I count all of that as rubbish. All my resume doesn't get me there. Think about this for a minute. If you have, uh, many of you probably do, have ha you have resumes, you put together a resume before. What, what does a resume do? What's the function of a resume? is to get you into a job, right? A resume basically, just in layman's terms, it gets you into a place that you want to be. And Paul is saying here that my resume, my spiritual good works, I wanted to use to get me into God. A resume shows your works. It shows why you're worthy to have that job, right? And Paul is saying, this is why I'm worthy for God, or this is why I thought I was worthy of God, but then he comes to the conclusion in these verses, no, ultimately, all those good works were just a heap of trash. It was excrement. It was dung. Resumes. Us trying to get to a place that we want to be, a place that we need to be. And he's saying the best of spiritual resumes, the best of religious resumes, resumes will not get you to God, will not get you to heaven. Your resume is not good enough. Texas high school football is uh, huge around here, huge. Football in Texas, big deal, but in Oklahoma, high school football is a big deal as well, and I come from Oklahoma, and the high school that I graduated from has the strongest uh, football tradition of any high school in Oklahoma, the Jinx Trojans. Jinx America is where I dawn from. 
okay? That was supposed to get an amen. Um, 16 state championships in Oklahoma. 16 state championships at Jinx. Everybody in Jinx this last week got a big scare because our head coach, Alan Trimble, retired for about 48 hours. And then he decided to come back. Now, who, if, if Alan Trimble resigns, who do you put in his place? What resume could possibly be good enough? Alan Trimble has been our head coach for 20 years. Guess how many state championship rings Coach Trimble has? 13. 13 state championships in 20 years. His final record as a coach for the last 20 years is 242 wins to 35 losses. 242 wins to 35 losses. Now he came back, but who would you put in his place? Who, who possibly has the resume to match Coach Trembles to replace him? There's no other high school coach in Oklahoma that could step into that job with a resume worthy enough, right? You'd have to come down to Texas, right? Or maybe you'd have to go to a, a college coach who has, has a resume in, a, in, a, in college uh, athletics to be able to fill that position. No one would measure up to that resume. And what the Apostle Paul is telling us here is none of us have the spiritual resume to get to God by our own good works. Amen. We fall short. None of us is worthy. So in modern thought, what, would our, what might our, our resume look like today? What might the things that we be that we use to, in a sense, bolster our, not righteousness, but our self-righteousness. And we do this. So some, for some of us, it's, you know, I'm a good person. I mean, I, I, I work harder than my coworkers. I don't lie. I don't steal. Man, I don't have the potty mouth that so-and-so does. I'm not a sailor like whoever I go to church, I attend church faithfully, I read my Bible, I pray every night. And what can happen with all that kind of modern, contemporary resume? This is what I've done. I read the Bible, I, I've never smoked, I've never drank, I've never date girl, girls that do. And then you have this sense of entitlement. You can have this sense of self-righteousness. I haven't done these things, I have done these things, and therefore I am worthy of God. And what I'm telling us, what the Apostle Paul is telling us this morning is that it's not about our resume. It's not about our moral standing. If unrighteousness is sin, we all know that. We all know when we've screwed up, but that's not the only type of sin that keeps us from a relationship with God. There's another type of sin that keeps us from a relationship with God, and it's just as bad, and it's probably more dangerous because it's subtle. It's not the sin of unrighteousness. It's the sin of self-righteousness. Man, I'm a good person. I'm a patriotic, North Texan, a proud American, upstanding, hard worker, and I can feel good about that. But that's a lie because our resume is never good enough. Our bad deeds are never so bad to keep us away from the grace of God, but our good deeds are never good enough to merit God's grace. That's what he's saying. I had an impeccable resume, but now I consider it trash. It's not worthy of God. 
And it actually served to puff me up and be proud and self-righteous. So some of you are familiar with the message paraphrase. I love the way Eugene Peterson has, has paraphrased these few verses here. He says, the very, the very credentials these people are waving around as something special, I am tearing up and throwing out in the trash, along with everything else I used to take credit for. And why? Because of Christ. Yes, all things, I, all things I once thought were so important are gone from my life. Compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as my master firsthand, everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant, dog dung. I've dumped it all in the trash so that I could embrace Christ and be embraced by him. I didn't want some petty, inferior brand of righteousness that comes from keeping a list of rules when I could get the robust kind that comes from trusting Christ, God's righteousness. Amen. When's the last time you heard a preacher rail against morality? Usually it's immorality, right? But in this case, it's a subtle danger, but nevertheless a danger that, we, that we're good people, we're good citizens, and that we're religious, and we go to church, and we pray, and therefore we think that gives us a standing before God, and it doesn't. It's not unrighteousness, but it's self-righteousness. Well, this can be confusing because, I mean, doesn't the Bible say to do good things? I mean, Ross, aren't we supposed to be good people? Yes, we are. In fact, Jesus, we've looked at this in the past. Jesus, Matthew 5 says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And earlier in Philippians chapter 2, he said, I want you to shine as lights. The Bible does talk about good works. He wants us to do good things, right? But the problem with good works is not that good works are bad. Good works are good. That's why we call them good. But the problem with good works is not that, they're, that we're doing good. The problem with good works is that we're trusting our good works. Do you see the difference? When you think about works and when you think about good works and following Christ, you have to remember two things. The mo, I'll call it, okay? Motivation and order. Motivation and order. And for most religious people, when they think about good works, they get the motivation and the order backwards. In other words, just common religion, just the religion around us normally says, do good and God will bless you. So the motivation for doing good is to get in God's good graces. Do good and God will bless you. It's completely the opposite in the Christian faith. In Christianity, what we say is that God has given us grace and Jesus, and therefore we do good. Amen. We don't get grace by doing good. Because we have grace, we do good. The motivation is completely different. Maybe you want to hear it from uh, the Apostle Paul in Romans 12.1. Romans 12.1, he says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. What is he saying here? He's saying, worship God. Give your whole life to God. Offer yourself as a living sacrifice in worship to God. But why do we do this? What's the motivation to do this? It's not to gain God's good graces. It's because in the first part there, he says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. 
Because of the mercy of God to you, you then live a life of worship and good works because of his grace, because of his mercy for you. Do you see the difference? You see that it is exactly the inverse of just common religion that we hear? Uh, another, another passage, of Philippians 2, 8 through 10. We use this one a lot. Same idea. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Could he be more clear in, in verse 9? Not as a result of works so that no one can boast. We do good works not so that we can boast, but so that we can boast or glory in Jesus, as Paul has said here in Philippians chapter 3, right? Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, are we supposed to live a life of good works? Yes. But again here, what is the motivation? What is the order? And the order is grace, faith, and good works. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Therefore, you work in light of God's grace, not working for God's grace, okay? Every religion in the world, every religion in the world will tell you that people don't measure up to God and therefore they should probably repent. They should probably turn their life around. Everyone knows that we should repent of our bad deeds, but here's the secret. The secret is that only in Christianity do we repent not only of our bad deeds, but our good deeds. Good deeds that are done in selfish motive. Good deeds that we use as a badge of self-righteousness to prop up our ego, to look down on other people, to think that we have merited God's grace. But God's grace comes to us freely. We don't do good to get grace, we receive grace and thus do good. So we repent, not only of bad deeds, but also of the good deeds that have dangerously, subtly propped us up with a self-righteousness that has in fact kept us from getting to Jesus. Tim Keller, many of you know, is one of my favorite pastors. Tim Keller says it like this. He says, when we fail, we must remember that we are saved by grace, and when we succeed, even more so. Amen. We can run from God, we can hide from God in two ways. We can run as rebels towards unrighteousness, towards sin, towards all the yucky things that Preachers love to point their bony fingers and point out all the unrighteous things. We can run from God from unrighteousness, but guess what? We can also run from God by our self-righteousness. And both of those, unrighteousness as well as self-righteousness, are ways of avoiding Jesus. But salvation is coming to Jesus and saying, I'm so bad I can't get to you, and my goodness is not good enough to get to you. Thank you for coming to me. Amen. See, Christmas is the story that tells us we couldn't get to God, so he came to us. There was no way we could get to God, so he came to us. And Easter is the story of the cross and the resurrection 
where we're told that our badness, our unrighteousness, and our self-righteousness were defeated in the cross and resurrection. So our badness, our sin was defeated, and our self-righteous good works were defeated on the cross so that we can come to him simply by faith in his goodness. He's done it. And that, folks, is the difference between religion and grace. Religion is a resume that says, God, let me in. Let me in. But Christianity and grace is God saying, you're not worthy, we all know it, but come in anyway and be my child. Not on your merit, but on my merit. Look out. Watch out. And this is a subtle danger, folks. We live in Texas. We live in the Bible Belt. And my fear as your pastor and my fear as a minister in this part of our world is that many among us, many around us, perhaps many sitting here this morning have grabbed a hold of religion but have not yet grabbed a hold of Jesus. You're a church attender, you pray, you try to be a decent person, but you have fallen short of Jesus, not because of your unrighteousness, totally, but more so because of your self-righteousness. So I ask you this morning, have you come to Jesus or have you just embraced religion? Maybe you are sitting here this morning and you realize, finally the gospel is clear to me that it's a gift, that the cross was necessary, that I could never do it, and I need to embrace the person of Jesus, not my religious activity. And I want to invite you in a few minutes, just in the quietness of your heart, to do just that, to say, Jesus, the only thing I bring to you is my sin. Thank you for your grace. Thank, thank you for your blood shed for me on the cross and your victory over that sin through your resurrection. Religion and grace. Two categorically, fundamentally different things. Do you know it? Do you know Jesus? Have you seen the cross as beautiful? Or are you just going through the motions of religion? Being a good person. Paul found his confidence no longer in himself, but in Christ. Look at verses 7 through 11, and we'll look at these more next week. But verses 7 through 11, he says this. We see his confidence, which I love as, a, as a, almost a, a better synonym for faith. What do you believe in? People say that all the time, but let me ask you this this morning. Where is your confidence is your confidence in yourself, is your confidence in your goodness, or is your confidence in Jesus and what he has done? So look at verses seven through 11 and see where his confidence is now, his new righteousness. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Underline this next part. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain resurrection from the dead. His confidence is no longer in his resume. His confidence is completely and solely in Jesus. Where is your confidence this morning? Would you bow your heads with me and pray? And I wanna invite those of you that the light bulb may have just gone off as you heard this message. That you've never known the difference between religion and a relationship with Jesus. Between a resume of good works and grace. And I just wanna invite you, if that's you, to pray briefly with me. Just pray something like this silently as I pray it out loud. Jesus, I didn't know. Jesus, I was blinded by religion and far from you. Jesus, thank you for giving me your righteousness in place of my unrighteousness and self-righteousness. Jesus, be my savior. Make me a child of God. Holy Spirit, live through me. If you prayed that prayer this morning, if you, ex- if you expressed faith in Christ for the first time, I wanna ask you just to contact me. You can write it on a connection card or perhaps you wanna even raise your hand right now where you sit to let me know that you have, for the first time, trusted not in religion but in Jesus. Would you just raise your hand right where you're sitting? Amen. I want to remind us as we conclude here, finally, the preacher says, go back to verse one. Remember what he says in verse one? He says, rejoice in the Lord, but he says to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. He's reminding us and I am reminding us this morning because every week that we gather here, Every day that we wake up, we tend to lean in one of two directions. Every time we worship, and we tend to either come here and we lean into guilt because we know our unrighteousness, or we tend to come and gather here and lean in our self-righteousness and think, I had a pretty good week. I prayed. I read the Bible. But both of those are relying on ourselves and not upon Jesus. We need to be reminded of the gospel. We need to be reminded of grace every day, every week, because we are so tempted to fall back into self-righteousness, to fall back into our own performance by our own good works. And so as we come to the table this morning, we are reminded tangibly, physically, that Jesus came 
shed his, shed his blood and was beaten and broken his body for us so that we could stand righteous before God on his good work. Will you bow and pray with me? Father God, we thank you that uh, you have not left us alone, that you have rescued us from our self-righteousness, you have delivered us from our unrighteousness. We come to the table this morning in faith, not faith in ourselves, but faith in the goodness of you, faith in the sacrifice of Jesus for our sin. Lord, would you make this tangible to us? Would you make this real to us that we would live lives of worship because of your amazing grace to us in Jesus. It's in his beautiful name that we pray.